Hi, and welcome to The Last Outlaws bonus content. I'm Emma Lancaster, the executive producer of Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney, an audio production house funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. At Impact Studios, we work with the best scholars to embed audio in the research process, making one-of-a-kind podcasts that entertain, inspire, and create change. Before we start our conversation today, I want to let Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners know that this episode contains the names and descriptions of people who have passed and deals with the deeply distressing issue of repatriation. The colonial practice of removing Indigenous remains and sacred objects has proved a traumatic experience for First Nations people and their communities. And as we learned in our last conversation with Dr Linda Norman-Parker, ancestors were being taken from the Kimberleys in Western Australia as recently as the 1970s, within living memory of our elders today. We've also learned that the repatriation process, although challenging, can be a healing process, providing opportunities for truth-telling and reconciliation. It's my pleasure today to introduce to you Professor Daryl Rigney, a citizen of the Nurunjeri Nation. Daryl is an experienced educator, leader and researcher with more than 30 years in the higher education sector and he's currently the Director of the Indigenous Nations and Collaborative Futures Research Hub at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. Daryl first came to the issue of repatriation as a community member and has since worked in this space throughout his career in higher education. And whilst there's been a lot of focus on international repatriation, there has been an ongoing campaign for Australian memory institutions to return ancestors and old people. Daryl estimates in the South Australian Museum right now, there are between 1,600 to 2,000 old people that are yet to be repatriated. Repatriation touches Aboriginal people across the country and Indigenous people across the world. I caught up with Professor Daryl Rigney online mid-lockdown in his Adelaide study. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So uh, I'm Daryl Rigney. I'm a professor and the director of the Indigenous Nations and Collaborative Futures Research Hub at uh, Jumbana Institute, University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, I also, as a part of my own cultural protocol, want to acknowledge um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations, wherever they might be, and listening. It's really important for me to do so. I refer to myself as a citizen of the Ngunnawal Nation, uh, a, a First Nations group uh, in the Coorong Lower Lakes and Murray Mouth region of South Australia. Where did your journey with repatriation begin? How did you how did you kind of first encounter this? Yeah, my my uh, sort of history with repatriation came primarily uh, as a community member, um, well aware um, because of the role that I was playing in community um, through my sort of academic role. But this precedes the academic role; it goes back to when I was a young person hanging around in the Gunnedini Nation and with community uh, and the issue of um, returning our old people, as we refer to them, uh, Gunnedini refer to old people, to uh, country and back to uh, the Gunnedini Nation has been something that's been on the agenda for Gunnedini for um, decades now. We've had particular uh, leaders and elders who have led that work most of that work coming out of the Ngunnawal Heritage Committee as the formal body doing the work around repatriation 
of uh, Ngunnawal old people, uh, including both the identification of where those uh, old people might might be in the world, and uh, then uh, having identified where we could find those old people, under, you know, which meant we had to understand, you know, who were the collectors, who were the uh, the um, burial ground ransackers, um, who were the people taking old people, and where did they end up, and who were their f- networks and friends both in their own professional roles but sometimes very much um, relationships with one another uh, in terms of the distribution of our old people uh, around the world. A lot of that focus has been in um, international repatriation, but we should never forget, and uh, certainly the Ngunnawal Nation has um, continuously asked for the return of Ngunnawal old people held in Australia and by Australian institutions and primarily the South Australian Museum, which continues to hold, in our estimation, somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 Ngunnawal old people. So um, my introduction to repatriation understanding began in community, um, understanding this is what um, some of our uh, leaders and elders were working on, and then later on in the role that I played, uh, in higher education started to take me into doing repatriation work for and on behalf of the Ngunnawal Nation, formalising that through the, uh, the higher education sector that I was involved in. So this for me began at Flinders University and now followed through to University of Technology Sydney where I now work, um, where we've been involved in um, research projects, Australian Research Council funded projects, which are about documenting and understanding the history, effects and opportunities of repatriation for First Nations populations uh, here in Australia. And that those projects have focused primarily on the Ngunnawal Nation, the Kimberley, through the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre and the Torres Strait through GBK as the representative organisations working on repatriation f- for those respective regions. So it sounds like a deeply personal connection and also a deeply professional one as well. Both of those. Um, and uh, you, you try and stand back from it a little bit in terms of the professional working role that we play in the projects, but I find that very difficult to do as I understand how much it touches Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the country, Indigenous peoples across the world. I mean, this is a, a worldwide uh, phenomenon and the impacts and the effects of uh, removing uh, old people or ancestral remains has had uh, a profound effect on on people across the globe. So for those, I guess, who have the incredible privilege of, of not knowing what repatriation is, um, how would you explain it in terms to someone who is just encountering that concept for the first time? When we refer to repatriation through the the projects and it can be seen today, one of the outcomes of the project is a website, Return, Reconcile, Renew, which details repatriation and what that does and and how we speak to it is uh, repatriation as being the return of ancestral remains, sometimes named differently by different communities or different nations, old people in our case, um, who uh, are held primarily in... um, Collecting institutions of various kinds, whether they museums, um, medical hospitals, uh, universities and anatomy departments, uh, as well as a substantial number of uh, First Nations peoples who have ended up in private collections. 
So we refer to it in that case in the, the return um, of those ancestral remains of those old people. It can also be extended out to talk about other kind of cultural objects in terms of the repatriation of particular cultural objects. They may be, they may be an object like a spear or a boomerang or um, it might be some other object like a headdress in certain communities if they use those or blankets or whatever it might be, you know. And uh, for Ngarantari, it would also include what we would call our Ngachis. Ngachis is a way of talking about our kind of, as one of our elders and leaders is now past, referred to as our special friend, um, our special friend. So it, it might be called, you know, in kind of anthropological terms, totems uh, of that nature. So, uh, for example, I've uh, seen a, a pinyale, an emu, in the Natural History Museum in Paris that came from Ngarindori country as a part of the, the voyages of Nicolas Baudin, who uh, collect, was collecting you know, flora and fauna from uh, all over the country and where they travelled. And part of the collection of animals and birds of varying kinds was because Napoleon asked for that to happen. And uh, and Josephine, his wife, was actually very interested in wildlife from around the world and had a huge menagerie on one of their properties in uh, France. And so when we saw, there was a delegation of us actually saw that uh, that Pinley, that emu in the Natural History Museum in Paris, we, we talked to, you know, one of the things we might have thought to do because those are for some Ngarajani, they're Ngarji, they're, they're totem, they're a special friend. Um, whether we might think about repatriating or making claim, or indeed whether we might think about saying, look, you know, that emu takes particular significance for some Ngarajuri, and what we can do is add to the body of knowledge that, um, because a lot of these have little cards that tell a story about where they collected it and how it's named and it's, you know, and so on. Um, so we said we could add to that story and um, broaden out an understanding about what that emu might represent to, to Ngarajuri in this case. Well, that's um, an incredibly generous thing to do, add to the depth of knowledge around that. I guess it, it does present the big question, and the big question um, is why do these collecting institutions have these things, you know? I mean, you've you've mentioned obviously in the case of causing a, a kind of quest that occurred around the world that, that reached to, um, you know, a space that is um, special and known to you. Um, but, yeah, that that's the big question, why? Uh, to understand why um, old people were, were removed, um, I think it's important to understand how this kind of locates within broader events that are occurring. So, you know, with imperialism and with colonial expansion, with encounters with new worlds, these European powers, be they French or British or Spanish, were encountering things that they'd never seen before. And one of the things that humans have a tendency to want to do is to put things into categories um, because it helps provide order and a way of being able to understand, even though that understanding comes from a particular cultural lens. Uh, and so this kind of um, expansionist movement, this colonial movement across the world, is, is occurring. At the same time, there are understandings about how the world began where humans come from that um, has varying schools of thought in relation to that. One of those schools of thought is that um, we're all descendants of God, uh, of Adam and Eve, and so one of the you know, key questions was, well, if 
this is the image of Adam and Eve and the image of God as in religion, then how do we explain these other creatures or other humans, if indeed considered to be human? How do we explain differences in the way people look, colours of skin, texture of hair, shapes of um, you know the body and the face and so on? And so you get this huge sort of effort around race science coming to play through the late 18th, right through the 19th and into the 20th century, um, where you, for the purpose of um, studying racial science, access to human remains, access to bodies, access to skeletons became part of science and part of uh, efforts of study. And we see that in these disciplines that, that, that emerge, you know, comparative uh, anatomy, craniology, physical anthropology and so on. So you have have this kind of effort at trying to understand the way the world is. And indeed, often, often the world was understood prior to the word race being used uh, in, in religious terms. You know, there were Christians and infidels and, and so on. Race as a term as applied to humans gets used for the first time in around the 1750s. 1751, where um, it's um, used as a set of categories in order to be able to um, make explanation. And so you get these categories emerge, Caucasoid, Australoid, and so on, all these different categories. And uh, and remember, at the same time, we've got this kind of quest to thinking about, well, you know, are we descendants of Adam and Eve and God, um, or is there is it, is it an evolutionary um, event and you get a movement through evolutionary ideas that emerge over time. You know, so you get Darwin's An Origin of the Species in 1859 coming up, which coincidentally happens to be the same year that the um, Point Maclay mission was established where uh, many Ngunnawadi people were put down in our country in 1859. And so you got this effort at trying to understand the the um, taking of bodies as a part of that physical science effort to then make judgment, I guess, often called scientific reasoning, but judgment about these individuals that were being and these communities and these societies that were being encountered in other parts of the world. And uh, and so there's a huge struggle actually around these ideas. In my own studies, you know, I came across the uh, the idea that one of the schools of thought was monogenism, so singular origin, mono, mono being singular and genism being origin, and that's essentially the the Adam and Eve theory that we're descendants of through religious and Christianity. What you have, though, is um, different stages of development um, inside of that. Uh, and so that's why that would be, you know, what accounts for differences. Sometimes it may be environmental, you know, hotter climates. Um, you generally end up with people with darker skin and so on, you know, colder climates, lighter skin. So, then, you know, these kind of ideas are being presented um, and contested and challenged all the time. Another school of thought was um, polygenesis. There's multiple origins. And so in it, what you have is these, you've got these humans who look a particular way. And then there are these other things, uh, other creatures that look like humans, but aren't human. Um, And often uh, First Nations, Indigenous populations were put into that non-human category. And so in a sense, we were considered to be no different from the flora and fauna of a region because we weren't human in that sense. 
And and so there's this huge scientific effort to study this, to determine whether that's true or not, to hypothesise, to develop ideas, to publish. And so you get this network that develops out of it, which brings in, you know, the higher education sector and universities and professors of varying kinds are doing research and work. You get state-sanctioned efforts. So the state is actually putting money into this process of of knowledge development and acquisition through research and through the development of these ideas. And, you know, we, we know that those ideas can be contested and have been contested, but this is the kind of the big worldwide effort that's going on. And so, so the collection of things, the ordering of things becomes part of it. There's also just a, a, a sense of curiosity in, you know, where First Nations populations become curios of, of scientists and others. Um, and so one of the points that I make when talk about why repatriation or what happened that I always like to make is um, it's not just this kind of random walking along and collecting up bones and putting away, but it's actually state-sanctioned. The state puts money into it. The state funds uh, these learned institutions of varying kinds. Um, the state pays the salaries of coroners and others who collect bodies and then distribute those bodies to their networks um, across the world and do their studies back here in Australian context. So, you know, I don't think we can say that it's just this kind of random thing that happens, but it's actually uh, organised, structured and state-sanctioned. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point you make, Daryl, and these are organised, concerted efforts. So for the kind of existing institutions like our memory institutions and for our knowledge institutions as well who have like been active participants in this collection and also still house these items like, you know, whether they be objects or they be ancestral remains as well, what obligation do they have in terms of reconciling with their past? I think they have a huge obligation to reconcile their past. The kind of there is a you know a movement amongst scholars who are who are looking at these as you um, mentioned uh, these kind of memory institutions, these places that house things and that display things and provide information and knowledge about those things, depending on who put the exhibition together or um, the collection together. So there is an effort, though, to decolonize these institutions, to get them to shift um, and, and do things differently and to engage. And many of them uh, have done so. You know, many of them have begun to think very seriously about their role as public institutions and as repositories of knowledge and, and translators of that knowledge to the public in order to develop an understanding about a topic. You know, many of them are doing that. And you see some terrific efforts of museums that have made that effort and have made the effort to develop repatriation policies informed by bodies that provide advice and information made up of um, First Nations peoples who are challenging the institutions to be better than they have in the past um, and to think differently and to, in our case, recognise First Nations populations in this country in far better ways than they have. And also to tell the story of First Nations peoples from a contemporary perspective, not something simply of the past and, you know, and antiquated. So 
one of our critiques that we've done of some some institutions, some museums in particular, is that when you walk into them, you would think that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are of the past and dead. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that would be about, you know, spears and nets and how people once fished and how people once made fire and, and so on, you know, which are all important parts of knowledge and, and historical knowledge. But you would think that that's the end of it and you don't see um, things that tell the story of contemporary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander society in some of these places. And, you know, what kind of does is tell people that we are of the past and, and it doesn't actually do anything to think about how we are of now and will be of the future. And yet you go to another institution and they'll, they'll have exhibitions. Um, I saw one in, in Victoria where the museum had a little exhibition which showed in a display case a young Aboriginal girl from the country, some of her artwork, and there was a netball trophy sitting alongside that and then a picture of a family and, and so on. And so, you know, they were telling a contemporary story of First Nations people uh, and then I've been in other places where it's, it's just non-existent. So, so I think these places have important roles to play in in that public kind of knowledge and understanding. But in doing that, you know, this, they need to also understand their own colonial histories. They need to uh, understand the roles that they've played as collecting institutions and the stories that have come with that. And they also, I think, need to understand that they have a responsibility to shift and to change. We are again seeing that in some places. Some places have developed policies on repatriation, have engaged better ways with First Nations populations and with First Nations political authorities, you know, that represent, you know, uh, the nations themselves. So that, you know, we start to see that happening. We do see efforts at repatriation of uh, our old people back to communities. We've seen examples of cases where a community or a nation doesn't have the infrastructure to be able to receive their old people and have their own keeping place, even though there are across the country many sort of localised keeping places. But in some places, people don't have that kind of infrastructure. And so, you know, we, we've seen examples where uh, museums and others uh, have entered into an agreement with the uh, community in order to think about how they can maintain the collection at their place because they've got the facilities to do that but perhaps do it differently from what they have in the past where and there may be an agreement not to research those those remains anymore, you know, those old people anymore, um, maybe to place them in um, better facilities than they have instead of down in some room in, the, in, a, in, a, in a basement in a museum and, and put them into, you know, better places to be cared for. They've thought about how to uh, improve access to those old people's remains for the community to be able to get in there and so on. And so you, you do see those efforts um, uh, happening. However, you will also see some places that still don't do that and still refuse, um, who won't entertain the idea of uh, repatriating old people back to community, um, who make their processes very challenging and very difficult to do. So, you know, there's a veneer of being supportive of repatriation, but the processes that are put in place make it really hard to actually get done. So, you know, we, we have those examples as well. My view, this is a, you know, a really important part um, of truth-telling. We've seen 
through the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, but we've seen it here for generations inside Australia prior to the Black Lives Matters movement of uh, memorialisation, of statues and the challenging of these things to tell histories in a different way. And so that's part of this um, truth-telling effort that uh, was so prominent in the Uluru Statement from the heart, you know, the need for truth-telling, and we see the the Truth-Telling Commission set up in Victoria as an example of an effort to try and move on from from these histories. So, you know, my, my view is that um, you know, sometimes we, we just deal with difficult individuals who believe the collections are theirs and will want to hang on to them forever and a day. We've got something in between where sometimes some of the institutions want to digitise their collections, um, including the old people, um, and in some cases, uh, depending on the First Nations community and what their views are on it, that's not appropriate. In some cases it may be, and uh, in some cases um, some communities might continue to support ongoing research for particular reasons for doing so. In other cases they might say, no, we don't want those old people researched anymore. We don't want them studied and handled anymore. They've gone through enough. They've had centuries of this and they need to um, be at rest. Their spirits can't be at rest until they get back to country and part of that first process is to stop handling them and to give them space. So, you know, it's a, it's a really complex area. There's no one-size-fits-all. Different nations, different communities will have different views about how they do this. I think one of the really important things that comes with all of this and it does connect to the way institutions operate and who they recognise is that you see more and more First Nations populations establishing their own forms of political authority through institutions of their own that speak for um, the the nation and the people and, and take positions and views and that um, then would negotiate those with the institutions. And one of the things that the institutions can do is actually get better at recognising the political authority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their institutions in terms of representing their old people. You know, it's, um, it's not a pan-Aboriginal approach. We know there are cases where we get unprovidenced uh, old people, so we don't know enough about them. The, the information about them is not good enough at that moment in time to be able to clearly identify where they're from or who they're from. And so, you know, there is a kind of a need for a, a resting place for those unprovidenced um, old people, but there are others that there, there is enough documentation, there is enough information at, at a point in time to be able to know exactly where they come from or who they're from um, and then be able to kind of negotiate directly back to those political authorities that represent the people. And the institutions can actually get better at doing that, I think. That was Professor Daryl Rigney, the Director of the Indigenous Nations and Collaborative Futures Research Hub at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at UTS. Thanks to Daryl for sharing his insights with me. Now, if you find that this conversation has caused you distress, we encourage you to seek support from friends, family and elders, your local Aboriginal medical service or a national counselling service such as Lifeline. You can contact Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. That number's 13 11 14. If you'd like to find out more about repatriation, there is an amazing resource that exists online. It's a website called Return, Reconcile, Renew. You can visit it at returnreconcilerenew.info. 
Thanks also to the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research and Impact Studios would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Buru Barongal people of the Darug Nation upon whose ancestral lands UTS campuses now stand. We'd like to also pay respect to the elders, both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for these lands. The Impact Studios audio producer for this episode was Ryan Pemberton. You can hear the full three-part series, The Last Outlaws, a podcast where we explore the lives and legacies of Jimmy and Joe Governor, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>